Welcome, welcome. If you're new to Kindred, my name is George Hinman. I'm senior pastor at University Presbyterian Church. But this is not a gathering of UPC. This is a gathering of Kindred. Uh, Kindred uh, is a gathering where your ethnicity is not a liability. It's a gift. Kindred is a gathering where it's not shaped by your politics. It's shaped by your identity in Jesus Christ. Kindred means family. We're talking about his family, the multi-ethnic family of God in Jesus Christ. This is a family that's uniquely called and equipped for reconciliation right? in Jesus, in our church, in our churches together, in our city, and in our world. At this very moment, you're joining with others of different ethnicities from different churches to worship Jesus. This is so cool to me. Everybody's hearing the same message right now with you. Everybody's singing the same song. Um, because we believe that when Jesus looks at the church, looks down on us, he doesn't see a white church, a black church, Chinese church. What he sees is his church. This is the church for which Jesus prays. One church. That's what he sees. And he sees you. So this spring, we've been looking at a section in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 54 to Isaiah 60, and we've been looking at that because as Pastor Alex Sway from the Evangelical Chinese Church tells us, we find four themes that are gospel themes that are so essential to what we're doing here in Kindred. They're essential to reconciliation. Invitation, repentance, multi-ethnicity, and justice. So today, I want to look with you at Isaiah 57, and I want to talk to you about the obstruction in me. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 15. Um, pull out a Bible or navigate over to that. Um, I'd invite you to read aloud with me in whatever is your native language. If you'd like, you could stand with me as a way of honoring God whose word we're reading. Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 15. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Well, you can be seated if you stood up. Isaiah 57, 14 through 15, and the obstruction in me. Those two verses contain what could be called the heart of Isaiah 57 and even the heart of the whole book of Isaiah, because here God reveals where he lives and how we help people find him. Both of those things are here in these two verses. So listen again to this beautiful description of where God lives in verse 15. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with those who are contrite, or literally those who are crushed, and humble in spirit, or literally the one whose spirit has been humbled, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
I wonder what we could learn about you from where you live. We certainly learn something about God from where he tells us he lives. Highness and lowliness. It's where he lives. But it tells us something about God. It tells us something about his majesty and tenderness. About his holiness and mercy. God said, this is his self-disclosure. I live in the high and holy place. And I live with those who are crushed and humbled. Isn't that beautiful? We read earlier in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Highness. And then elsewhere, I think it's 42 or 43. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. Lowliness. And of course, this points us to the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. And we can see that here, right? The one who lives on high has come down to walk among us as a suffering servant. He has been crushed and humbled for the forgiveness of our sin, dead and buried. The third day he rises again from the dead, and then he is exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he sits in the very high place. This is the gospel. So now our humanity is in the high place with God, and God's divinity through his spirit is in the low place with us. This is good news. So, so God here reveals where God lives. And, there's a second part to this, how we can help people find him. Notice in verse 15, we're building a highway. There's, there's, there's road construction that happens here. I remember hearing in Moscow, Russia, someone said, we have two seasons. We have winter and road construction. And there's a highway being built here. Have you ever noticed in the book of Isaiah, this highway comes up quite a few times. There's a lot of road construction in the book of Isaiah because there's a highway. And this is a, a metaphor that Isaiah uses, a figure uh, for coming home. This highway, on this highway, God will travel. He'll come home to Jerusalem. Uh, the exiles will travel. They'll come home to Jerusalem. And, and then the four Corners of the world will release the nations of the earth or the ethnicity, the ethnoi means nations, ethnic identities, from the whole world traveling on this highway to come home to God in Zion. And Isaiah starts with a, a picture of that in, in Isaiah chapter 2, where this vision of Zion as a mountain uh, being raised up above all the other mountains. And the nations of the earth are all streaming to this mountain. They're drawn. They're attracted by the word of God. And, and they want the justice of God. And so they come from the four corners. And when they get there, uh, they find justice and peace. The, the sword has been beaten into the plowshare and the pruning hooks. The spears are, are beaten into pruning hooks. And they shall know war no more. See that in the highways, how, how the ethnicities get there. It's, it's, a, it's a figure for how God brings us all together and helps us find God. And the thing to notice here is that we have a role to play. Is that you're part of this. See, there's a construction project. God calls people to work on this highway. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. Right? That's verse 14. Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. Remove obstructions. 
Yeah, that's what you do when you build a highway, right? You have to elevate the ground a little bit so it doesn't wash out in the rains. And then you start pulling stuff out, uh, stumps or rocks or roots. Anything that stands between the nations of the earth and God on that highway, build it up and remove obstructions. That's, that's the image that God gives his people through Isaiah. So it makes me wonder what obstructions are in us, right? And this is a question that, that those who really want to help ethnicities come together and find God ought to ask. What obstructions are in us? Two weeks ago, uh, the Derek Chauvin verdict came in in Minneapolis. And, and I remember exactly where I was. As they say, I was on the phone with an African-American friend, and he said, the verdict just came in. Guilty. Murder. 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 And I think of it, how I felt in that moment. Um, I felt relieved was, was actually the first emotion. Relief that an African-American had found justice in an American court. And then almost immediately, I felt embarrassment, really clearly. So I just embarrassed that that had ever been a question, right? Embarrassed that there are so often American courts in, in which people of color don't get justice. But then the thing that I think I, I really remember most clearly it was, it's the tone in my friend's voice. So we talk a lot, and I heard a happiness in his voice. I heard a happiness I haven't heard in his voice for over a year. And it, it made me think, what's behind that? And I realized it's that, it's that when George Floyd got justice, it meant that, that in an American courtroom, George Floyd's life mattered. And, and for my friend, what that meant was, as an African-American man, that in America, his life matters. And then, uh, that was Tuesday, later that night, we had this panel on anti-Asian racism in America, because, you know, there's huge rise in anti-Asian uh, um, uh, American racism. And we were telling these stories, and I was hearing these stories of, uh, of a student who comes from Hawaii to University of Washington to study. And when she gets here, someone says to her, you know, you're a person of color. And she just never thought of herself that way. And the message was, you don't quite belong. Her story about someone in a taxi cab, and the cab driver keeps going, hey, where are you from? This is a third generation America. Where are you from? Where are you really from? And his answer is, here. Heard stories of young adults who right now in America are afraid to go to the grocery store to meet their basic needs. Afraid. Kindred began with stories like these. Uh, the first week of July in 2016, there were four officer-involved shootings of African-Americans and Latinos. And then by the end of the week, there were five police officers shot dead in Dallas. And Pastor Aaron Williams preached a powerful message the following Sunday. 
And he preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus told this story. And he reminded us of the teaching of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, you know, if, if, if week after week, year after year, people are traveling down this highway and they're getting mugged and hurt, then we don't just need to heal the victim. We need to fix the road. We need to fix the road. Now, how are we doing? How are we doing with that? It was five years ago. What I'm aware of is that so often we are pitted against one another. White against black, Japanese against Chinese, black against Latino, ethnicity against ethnicity. And yet, right now, here we are. I mean, here we are, really, as kindred. Gathered together as one. And I just find myself wondering, well, what is God trying to say to us now? What does he want us to hear now? And I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can say, honestly. But here's what I can say. I'm increasingly getting clarity on what it is that God is saying to me. And I'd like to just take a few minutes and share that with you. I want to share with you two struggles so that you can hear what God is saying to me. <laughs> and the first thing is this. God's saying, George, focus on yourself. Focus on yourself. Now, of course, this is what happens when you are confronted by the highness of God. It's what happens when you come into the presence of of the one who dwells in the high and holy place. Right? Think about it. Israel comes before God and they say, God, we want to talk to you about the Assyrians. Got a problem with the Assyrians. And God says, I want to talk to you about you. Or Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to talk to you about John. Jesus looks at Peter and says, ah, I want to talk to you about you. Or Isaiah comes to God and he says, I don't want to talk to you about these people of Judah. And God says, Isaiah, I want to talk with you about you. And this is where you get that moment in Isaiah 6 where he throws up his hands. And he says, woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. See, because in that moment, the one who lives in the high and holy place says, I don't want to talk with you about others. I want to talk with you about you. I I'm, want I'm to talk to you about the obstacle that's in you, Isaiah. And, that, and that's what he's saying to me. He's saying, George, um, what's the obstruction in you? I'm not talking to you about police officers or cab drivers or people with knives or politicians. I'm talking to you about you. Now, of course, this is a great disappointment to me, right? Because it's just so much easier to place blame on others. And it's a lot more fun as well, right? This is what you scientists call attribution bias. Attribution bias is a tendency to excuse ourselves and to blame others. So, example, Pastor Solomon comes uh, to a meeting a little bit late. And... Uh, I think to myself, mm, Pastor Solomon, he really didn't plan that very well, did he? But when I come to a meeting late, I say to myself, the traffic was really bad. 
nothing I could do, right? It's attribution bias. It's a tendency to blame others and excuse ourselves. Philip Roth writes, we go through life with a generalized sense that everybody is wrong except us. <laughs> when I read that, it just leapt off the page. I, I get that's true for me. And so, and so, yes, there are obstructions to reconciliation in other people or in society. And yes, you know, we can speak about those things, speak to those things. But the reality is we don't control so much of that. Whereas we have a lot of influence over ourselves. So, so to focus on myself and to think about the obstructions to reconciliation and justice in me. What does this mean for me? Well, for one thing, it means a whole lot less virtue signaling and a whole lot more soul searching. Focus on myself. This is a struggle, and I'm embarrassed to even admit this to you. So let me give you an example that I'm willing to admit. Um, my theology, I'm a pastor, so I have theology. And what I mean by theology is how I understand God and, and how I read the Bible. When you read Isaiah 57, the whole of the book, you realize that, that the Lord is speaking to a people through Isaiah who have mixed their theology with their culture. And that's the problem. They've mixed their theology with the culture, and as they do that, they have lost their sense of God's highness. This is the one who says in verse 15, my name is holy. <laughs> now, for me, I would do almost anything to avoid that holiness, that searing holiness, the perfection of God's goodness. I will hide. I will run. I will even tell myself lies. And it seems that's what's happened in this community in Isaiah's day. So much so that they, they don't even know the lies that they've told themselves. Uh, God seems to be saying, you know, behind all your God talk and your spiritual practices, I discern what I could call spiritual adultery. And so by the time we get to verse 15... Uh, God, God says, uh, uh, I will, actually not in 15, verse 12, God says, I will concede your righteousness. A better translation of that means I will declare or I will expose your righteousness. I'm going to just tell the truth about you. You have mixed your culture with your theology. When you think you're dealing with me, you're actually not. Well, this is strong medicine. But it makes me wonder, if I will take that same medicine, what along the way has been mixed in with my own faith? How has my own theology been shaped by the culture? Well, did you know, in 1667, the Virginia Assembly passed a law that said, even though a person is baptized as a Christian, that does not make them a free person in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Why did they pass that law? In England, it had been the general custom that Christians would not hold other Christians as slaves. 
And they didn't want that in Virginia. Why? Because they wanted to maintain their economic security. And in order to do that, they had to tell themselves lies. Lies like that black people were less than white people. Lies like you could set the soul free, but not the body free. Lies like the gospel and Christian baptism don't actually change our relationship to other people. And, and they don't bring any transformation to society. <laughs> now, this is not just a tragedy. This is an obstruction. Frederick Douglass, the African-American intellectual, wrote, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. It's okay, maybe you know about this, but here's what, yeah. this is not just about history. This is about me. There's something in me. Some part of this obstruction is in me. Reason for that is that the people who taught me the Bible were taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by these people in Virginia and elsewhere. So their ideas have shaped my ideas about God, about myself, about race, about baptism, about justice. I mean, this is really hard stuff. I understand. By the way, if you want to raise some of these questions yourself, I found Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black, very helpful in this regard. But what I'm saying is that God is calling me through Isaiah to engage with his highness. My name is holy. My name is holy. And I want to avoid that. But God loves me too much to let that happen. God wants to help me discover obstacles to his love. God wants to help me move beyond the traditions of men and the culture of the day. God wants me to have an identity that's shaped in his word by the scripture, an identity that's not one that I make up for myself, but that's rooted in the identity of Jesus Christ, one I receive from heaven. This holiness of God is not something to run from. It's actually the stuff and substance of our dreams and highest aspirations. This holiness of God is, the, is pure goodness, righteousness, and justice. Actually, when we really understand it, it draws us and it will draw all the nations of the earth. We think that we can remove obstacles from people's way if we become more like our neighbors and our culture. The, the truth is just the opposite. It's when we become more like Jesus that our neighbors and the nations are drawn. So I, I, I've been doing some soul searching. Quit working on others and start working on yourself. The Lord has been speaking to me. Focus on yourself. There's a second struggle. God is saying something else to me, and it's this. To disadvantage yourself disadvantage yourself. Now, this is what's going to happen when you're confronted by the lowliness of God. When you come into the presence of the one who dwells with those who are crushed and humbled. 
Of course, Israel's looking for its own vantage. Most of us are. Um, they're God's chosen people, we read, and shouldn't some perks come from that, like a good life and a life that keeps getting better? Yeah, that's, sign me up for that, right? But then the Lord introduces Israel to the ministry of the suffering servant. Uh, we read about it a few chapters before 57. The ministry of the suffering service, servant is the ministry of the one who gives his life for the sake of others. People who disadvantage themselves. And so when I come before the lowliness of God, I, here's what I hear God saying. George, what obstruction stands between you uh, before, my ch for, before a child of my multi-ethnic family and me that you can remove? What obstruction is there? Now, this is a real challenge for me. Um, I'm white. Um, maybe you noticed. I'm a male. I'm upper middle class. And I, I don't apologize for any of that. I'm happy to be I love being me. But I have to recognize that being me comes with many advantages. And here's what Jesus says. From, whom, from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. That's not Marxism. That's Jesus. Stay with me here. This is Jesus. I'm called to the righteousness of Jesus. The righteous one in the Bible, Bruce Waltke tells us, is the, is, is the righteous one, the one who is considered the righteous one in the Bible, Bruce Waltke tells us, is the one who disadvantages themselves to advantage others. Uh, Bruce Waltke is this great Old Testament scholar. He's on the NIV translation team, so he wrote the Bible. He uh, wrote the definitive commentary on Proverbs. And he writes, the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So the righteous advantage others by disadvantaging yourself. Let me give you an example of that. I remember a manager whose team was going to be merged with another team at a company. And uh, as he looked across, he saw the other team. There was another manager in that team. And uh, he, he said to himself, you know, I, I'm kind of late in my career. And that other manager, she's kind of early in her career. And you know what he did? He resigned his manager and took a different role. So that when the two teams merged together, she could be the manager over the whole thing, have full responsibility, lead the whole team. What did he do? He disadvantaged himself to advantage somebody else. This person was somebody who was disadvantaged in that corporate climate, and he advantaged her. What a beautiful thing that is. That's the way of the righteous person, according to Bruce Walke, Old Testament scholar. Now, I know how to disadvantage myself. I know how to do that for my own family. I've been doing that my whole life. It's kind of instinctive. Maybe it is for you, too. For me, it's been kind of a driving existential passion to provide for my family. So I'm disadvantaging myself constantly, driving to the soccer game or you know, staying up late to help with a crisis. My time, my money, my energy, it's all implicated and offered freely to advantage my children. Now, God here is asking me the question, okay, George, you get that. Now are you willing to do that for your kindred family? Oh, really? Yeah, your kindred family is actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, your primary family, your primary allegiance is to Jesus. Your kindred family is not the family whose bonds are natural. It's the family whose bonds are spiritual. 
spiritual. These are the bonds that are forged in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. So are you willing to disadvantage yourself so that you could advantage others in in that family, the multi-ethnic family of God? (laughs) Well, now immediately what I feel rising inside of me is an obstruction, another obstruction. And the name of this obstruction is fear. I'm I'm not proud of this. I'm just telling you, honestly, I feel afraid at that point. I fear loss. I I fear losing my advantage. I fear losing my security. Mostly I fear losing the security of my family, my, my natural family. But here's where the text really helps me. This is the wisdom and deep power of this passage because this text tells us that that it was fear that got in Israel's way as well. That's what drove them into idolatry. All idolatry is a reflection of fear. We're pursuing false security. The attraction of the idols is that they offer us security without ethical obligation. They promise us security. They don't demand anything from us in the way of justice. Now, of course, unfortunately, the awkward reality is God both promises security, but he also demands justice. It's all the way through the book of Isaiah, and in fact, the whole Bible. And this is why Israel struggled to, to even want to be God's covenant partner. It came with incredible perks, of course, but there were these demands. And so they said, ah, we choose the idols. Because they promise us security and they ask nothing. I don't have to care about anybody else other than me and my family. And God said, that's not going to work for you because that security will only, that, that pursuit will only exhaust you and that security will turn out to be a vapor and it, it won't do anything for you. And at the end of the day, when you return to me, you will find true security because I love you like an idol doesn't even know your name. You're going to throw it in the fire and warm yourself at the end of the day with your God. God says, even idolaters are loved by me. What you will find is that when you stoop to the lowliness of of idolatry and you find yourself humbled and crushed in idolatry, you'll meet me because that's where I live. I also live with the humbled and the crushed. And I will revive you, which means I will bring you back to life. Wow, what a promise this is in this text. God seemed to be saying to me, you you know what, George? If you were to disadvantage yourself again and again and again, if you were to disadvantage yourself out of all of your earthly comforts, you will ultimately find true security in me. George, I want you to hear me whispering to you the words I whispered through Isaiah to Israel in Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16b. George, hear these words. They're for you. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or somehow show no compassion for the child of her womb? Answer, no. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He who did not withhold his own son withhold any good gift? No. No. So what I'm saying is God is calling me through Isaiah to engage with his lowliness. I revive the spirit of the humbled, verse 15 tells us. And at me, I resist 
his lowliness because of my fear. It's an obstruction. I'm working so hard to protect my advantages. But where else can I find true security? And where else can a person who's been as advantaged as I have find the freedom to open himself up and serve other people, advantage other people, so that they too can share in that security, right? This is what Jesus gives us. This is the lowliness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who draws us in the mercy that he shares with us through the forgiveness of our sins and complete unconditional embrace. And when we enter into that lowliness and embody it for others, it will draw the nations together to one another because it's drawing them to him, to God. So I've been doing some soul searching. Find ways to disadvantage yourself so you can advantage others, the Lord's been saying to me. That's my struggle. Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Brothers and sisters, God promises to gather the nations together. He's building a highway, and we're on the construction team. So I'm asking, what obstructions are there in me? That's what I'm asking. I don't know. That might be a good question for you to ask yourself as well, for all of us maybe. You you, you might ask, what happens when I come before the highness of this God? What happens when I come before the lowliness of this God? You, you know, I, I don't know. You don't ask him. He'll tell you. God, what obstructions do you want to remove from me? I'm warning you, that's going to be a hard one. I know it's hard. But if you're white, I know it's hard to face feelings of guilt and fear and loss. If you're Asian, I know it's hard to find a place in a conversation that seems oftentimes so binary between black and white in America. If you're black, I know it's hard to face the exhaustion and hurt and distrust that's almost always a part of this conversation for you. And I honestly can say, I really don't know how to do this. I don't know. But here's what I do know. We are all in this together. All of us. And I mean literally right now as we worship Jesus. We are all in this together. And the truth is, if the racialization of society, if the sin, and it is sin, of mistreating one another, if the unabated violence on the basis of misguided notions of racial security or misunderstanding are not addressed in our time and in our place, we will not find peace anywhere. Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said, we must live together as brothers or die as fools. And the truth is, Jesus has got this. I mean, he's already done it. He's already reconciled humanity. He'd reconciled us to to God and reconciled us to one another. Reconciliation is our destiny. Like it or not, know it or not, that's where we're headed. Reconciliation. 
And so you and I have right now in Jesus, we have what our culture so desperately needs and yearns for, reconciliation. This is our moment. This is his moment. And you're a part of it already. That's what Kindred is all about. Just one quick example. During the pandemic, leaders from three different churches, different ethnicities have been gathering together to try to understand the public health situation. How does the gospel have implications for public health? They've been removing obstacles. And I'm saying to myself, wow, what would happen if people of different vocations from all three churches found each other and started to network together and raise similar questions? I mean, can you imagine uh, people who are in education, law enforcement officers, realtors, uh, people in the arts, workers in artificial intelligence, start saying, what implications does the gospel have for this discipline? I mean, and let's remove obstacles. How would that transform our city? That's what you're a part of. So here's the invitation. Will you join me? Will you join me in self-examination? Will you raise the hard question? God, what are the obstructions in me? I don't know what they are. Maybe you don't know what they are, but God knows what they are. And God promises to speak to us through his word and spirit. So I would invite you to pray with me and with others this prayer, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you join me in asking Jesus to open up our minds and hearts so that he can do a new thing in us, in us individually, in our churches, in kindred, in our city, in his world? Because this is the God who lives with us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the beauty of your mystery and your goodness and your love, your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you live on high and you point us to our highest aspirations and that you come and live with the lowly, the humbled, and crushed, that you meet us in our failure. We thank you that you've given us one another. And we thank you for kindred. And we pray a blessing on this. We thank you for the message of Isaiah. We pray a blessing on the hearing and the doing of God's word. That you might bring a a work of reconciliation into our lives. And that we might together give witness to who you are, your beauty in our city. We pray this in the name of Jesus, but not for our sake, but for yours. In Christ's name, amen.